Hello and welcome to Farmland. This week the World Potato Congress is taking place in Dublin, a platform for promoting the potato industry. Later in the programme, Agriland journalist Megan O'Brien visits Finnegan's Potato Farm in County Meath and I'll speak with the chair of the IFA Potato Committee, Sean Ryan. But first, I'm joined in studio by Head of Dairy Knowledge Transfer Department with Chagas, Joe Patton, and Agriland Dairy Specialist, Brian McDonnell. Joe, thanks for joining us on Farmland here today. First of all, Joe, I might just start off by asking you in relation to the Food Vision uh, Dairy Group. I suppose it's a group that came up with recommendations or was basically brought together to try and uh, help the dairy sector over the, the next number of years reach, reach emissions targets and sustainability. Um, various proposals are coming out and they're being amended and so on, but nothing has been decided yet. If recommendations do come out, um, obviously I suppose it'll be down to Chagas advisors to make themselves aware of these and to help the dairy farmers as much as possible. How feasible do you think it is to, to bring in new kind of methods like maybe reducing chemical or chemical nitrogen use or even methane mitigating kind of feed? Do you think that that's something that can be adapted by the dairy sector generally? I do think I do, I do, I do think it is um, Stella because there are there are a range of measures as we know, and I suppose like any of these things, um, we have we have, there will be sectoral targets. Obviously, it's between twenty two and thirty percent reduction needed, but to achieve that, that's going to require small changes that will accumulate on every farm that will accumulate into the, to, to to that uh, grand figure, if you like. So. You know, you look at what's there at the moment, and I know there's a lot of speculation and maybe a lot of um, a, bit, a lot of worry among dairy farmers about how this is all going to play out. But there are a lot of technologies that are in the bag there already that can make a big difference. So the obvious one is protected urea. Like that has proven benefits. There's a lot of science behind it at this stage. The question around residues has been resolved. The questions around uh, the growth rates have been resolved. So it's a very proven technology. What we need now is implementation of that on the ground. So I think. It's important that while there's lots of talk and lots of speculation as to the measures in there, the stuff that's already available to us, we really need to see implementation on that. You know, and that's that's the key. And the, for, the faster we get those things implemented at farm level, uh, the, the, the sooner we're going to reach our targets. So, you know, that's one of the big ones. Obviously, breeding as well will be a long term uh, will be a long term uh, process. But we have to understand that. There is a huge resource there now in terms of our own database for breeding. So the technology to be able to make those changes is there. We just need to maybe change some of the objectives that we have. Um, on the on the methane mitigation, the direct methane mitigation, there's a lot of work going on on that at the moment, as you, you'll have read about and seen. Um, lots of, there's some products in particular have been well proven for TMR type diets um, because they need constant delivery across the um, across the day. We're trialling those at the moment uh, on grass-based systems. Some promising results uh, for that at the moment, but if that comes in, that would be that would be something that would, would make, make a big difference. But I think for the moment, what we really need to do is focus on the, on the technologies that have been proven and get those implemented at farm level, I think. Yeah, I suppose just on the breeding aspects, what would be the key ones, like I suppose, more solids from less volume would be one of them potentially for farmers? And I suppose a real one is probably going to be days of milk, like isn't it? It Getting is. I, I, I think it is, Brian. Like the more solids from from 
more solids from the same or less milk. I think sometimes maybe in the early days of EBI, like EBI is now over 20 years old, there was always that debate and always that concern maybe among some elements of the of the dairy industry that we were breeding milk out of cows. Yeah. But the data says the opposite, actually, that we've now far more productive cows than we used to have when you look at what the national production figures are, both from a total solids and also from a percentage solids point of view. So the breeding for solids has worked. It has put money in farmers' pockets, which is very important. Um, but part of the reason that we can get more productivity is down to fertility and longevity. So it does stand to reason that if we have um, a lower replacement rate and more lifetime production from animals, it does reduce their overall, uh, their overall carbon uh, footprint from their maintenance or from the, obviously, young stock don't produce milk, but they produce methane. So there's, there's real opportunities there for people to breed more productive, more long-lasting cows, which will help to reduce our inventory cost uh, overall. So that's a big one. So feed efficiency, obviously, as well. Animals that can convert feed more efficiently uh, into milk product, that's an important one. And as we move through to like maintenance and, and beef traits will become more important as well, because it's becoming uh, obviously a more important part of the overall picture is to have, you know, to, to, to have um, progeny from, from, from dairy stock that can, that can uh, produce a saleable beef animal at a, at a low age at slaughter as well, which yeah. is important. Suppose, which is going to be key going forward with the sex semen rollout and the increased uses of sex semen yeah. on the farms potentially. Like I know it's up this year with the lab in Warpark now going. Mm. So potentially there's further use of sex semen coming on the line. So we really need good quality beef calves. We do. And I, th I think that's where, you know, what sex semen will deliver in time is better quality heifers, but maybe not more heifers because mm. people will naturally limit what's needed for their own replacement rate. I don't think it's going to lead to a lot of heifers, really. It might do for a year or two as people settle down into finding what number works for them. But really what sex semen will do is create the capacity to have early born heifers of the highest quality from your best stock or your best cows, I suppose. But it will create the opportunity then for uh, for more beef calves of higher quality. Yeah. Now, there are there's a huge range. and I know sometimes we're always asked about which breed to use or should we use a Hereford or Angus or Continental. We have to recognize there's a massive range in the quality of on the type of animals, even within breed. So we have to look at the numbers on that too, the dairy beef index, the commercial beef value. They will deliver in time and they'll deliver animals that can that can uh, perform well at that sort of 24 month type system. I think yeah. that's that's very important. Uh, that's very important going into the, into the future, I think. Yeah. And I suppose then looking at kind of 2022 where kind of milk price are very are quite good this year. I know input costs are up. But like, is this very much a year where farmers should be building a bank of cash to have the security going forward? Mm -hmm. Like, like historically, we've seen you get a peak of a year and then you get a bit of a fall off in prices. And if that's a concern with the high input prices, like we really should, farmers really should be. Yeah, I think, look, I suppose you look at that, you say absolutely the the, the input um, input costs and input prices are, are, are really historically high, you would say, across the board, leading to very, very high levels of, of cost. But the milk price is helping to, to, to soften that to a large extent. The, the question about building a fund, that's something we would have always suggested. People have some reserve of a fund there, particularly, you know, um, coming into the autumn period. Sometimes that's when cash flow is quite positive on farms, maybe, you know, September, October, November time. It's not a time to be, it's not maybe a year for very easy discretionary spending. And I do think, to be fair, 
like lots of development work and people have spoken to a lot of people that are have looked for quotes for jobs for example so building work construction work there's a massive increase in cost there as well so that probably will limit people's uh, ambition this year for for capital projects it will create that potential maybe for um for more of a fund put together so i think it's a year to really look at you know where the discretionary spend and you would really have to ask the question is it something that that type of work should never really be done out of cash flow anyway um, but it would be exercise a lot of caution because we wouldn't want to be relying on the high milk price right into the future to keep us going, I would say. Yeah. We've seen the introduction of the new regulations around antibiotic usage and the, the blanket dry criteria is now, I think, in the past, I suppose, and now fair to say. But like we're seeing that there's about around half of dairy farmers in the country are milk recording. Mm. Is that enough, like, really? Like, I know some fellas are probably, oh, I can't do it in my parlour, but hey, I, the the companies will tell you like every parlour in the country is suitable for recording. Mm, mm. It is. Look, <laughs> milk recording is really, really useful. A really, I think, a critical tool. The, the, the challenge for a lot, I think, for a lot of farmers is the time and the labour side of things. And unfortunately, I think some people have had maybe maybe negative experiences with milk recording for some for whatever reason. It takes a lot of time or it's hard to organise, particularly maybe if they're doing doing it on their own, for example. But you have to sort of work through those things to see then the benefits that the farm gets from it in terms of uh, certainly on the cell count, certainly on the capacity maybe to identify the cows for beef breeding if we are going to be using more sex semen and really to uh, allow you to improve the quality of the herd. There's no doubt about it. The herds that have good milk recording data over numbers of years, they do improve faster. There's no question. And they have the far better chance of um, of, of making progress on the on their use of, of selective dry cow. It's really essential for that, for that, to be honest. So I suppose, look, what I would be saying to people that have maybe reluctant to go milk recording or maybe have had a, a bad experience of it in the past is give it another go, sort of set yourself up. It's going to be four or five occasions in the year where you're going to have to do it. It doesn't add up to that much extra time in the year. It gives you an awful lot of extra benefit. It's definitely something we should be uh, encouraging more people to, to get into. Now, I do think, to be fair, that the the stats are showing that the number and the, the number of cows and the number of herds that are milk recording ha is improving a lot, I think, which is a good sign, I think, but we just need more people to, to jump on that train, I think, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Joe, can I just ask you then in terms of we'll say fodder for herds at the minute. Mm. Um, there's a rumour or I suppose talk out there that farmers this year are not putting out as much fertiliser because they can't afford it, obviously, with the input mm. cost you mentioned. And are you concerned at this stage about a potential um, difficulty with attaining fodder or having it in store for the house, yeah. house period at the end of the year back end? I suppose we're always concerned about that. Yeah. It's almost like you don't want to be sort of crying wolf on these things, but... Um, what I would suppose I say? this year yeah, probably this year is the year. I suppose, look, what we would always say there, if you go back to, let's say, 2012, 2009, 2018, there was always that thing we would say, Stella, that if you got to, you know, in a year when there was a crisis for feed, we always would have said, if you can get to 80% of your requirements for feed, you would have options to fill the gap. So that would be feeding barley and gluten or feeding concentrates and straw maybe to fill a gap of 20%. That... The cost of filling a 20% gap this year or next winter, maybe the availability of the alternatives from a concentrate point of view and the cost of them would be prohibitive. So what we're really saying is that we have to make sure that people make 100% of the requirements this year. Now, our initial surveys that we did, we did a survey last autumn 
and people were very well stocked. There were a bit, there was on average 25% uh, surplus on farms, which was very good across beef and dairy. But 10% of farmers in that survey, again, across beef and dairy, were significantly short. And that 10% seemed to be short every year. I'd worry about those farms this year. They need to, you know, if you were short last year, or if you had to buy last year, there's definitely a need to do something a bit, a bit, you know, there's still plenty of time to do something about it. So in general, the, there is a good stock of feed. I think people learned an awful lot of lessons in 2018. They never wanted to be back in that position again, and they've made the changes, you know, and they're benefiting from that now. From what I see um, at the moment, I think silage season has kicked off a week early this year, actually. I would think there's, there's a lot of activity in parts of the country where you wouldn't expect it, perhaps. So I think it's pushing along as normal. We have seen maybe on the dairy side that our initial survey work for this year has shown that people have more or less used the same amount of nitrogen as other years, which is good. On the dry stock side, maybe not so much. So that tells me that maybe the farms that were used to sell a bit of surplus or whatever, that might be on the market this year. So people really do need to be saying, right, okay, do your budget after your first cut. Uh, make sure that there's enough second cut in the plan to get you to 100% of your requirements. It's not a year to be 15 or 20% short because the cost of filling that gap is going to be huge next winter, I would say. And finally, Joe, I suppose there's a lot of scaremongering at times about environmental standards and reaching certain targets. and. Mm. Sometimes you'll hear, you know, oh, the dairy herd will be reduced or the suckler herd will be reduced and so on. What you've described there in terms of improving, you know, milk solids, the quality, I suppose, and through the breeding. From what I gather there, it would reduce the dairy herd, but not in a way that they're going to go out culling dairy cows tomorrow. It's more of a sense that you wouldn't be getting replacements, obviously, number one. And but can farmers be guaranteed that they'd still get the same return on it by embracing these technologies? I think what we should say there is that the, the, the ambition is to reduce the emissions from the dairy sector or from the from the agriculture sector as a whole. So that's going to be a bucket of solutions, really, which will involve technologies, really. At the moment, you know, the, the, the idea of capping numbers is not on the table in terms of from 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 the reports we've seen. It's more maybe looking at what the level of total uh, carbon output is and what we can do to, to, to reduce that. So that's important to say that that's where the reduction is not so much a reduction in the activity in the industry. And I think that's why, you know, that's why farmers should be pos pos very positive about some of the things they can do. You can take out a couple of million uh, tonnes equivalent by changing your fertiliser, for example. So the sooner farmers embrace those technologies, the, the sooner we, they have something to point to in terms of their contribution to the national effort in terms of reducing emissions. And that can be, you know, some of the technologies we've spoken about there, Stella, they're, they're cost neutral or cost beneficial, actually. So changing your fertilizer type won't cost it could save you money improving the quality of the herd will save you money and improve your in, your improve your 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 income the, i suppose one of the places where maybe the um where some of the debate happens a lot i i would say is around you know is the not so much the scale of herds but the intensity of and i think we have to be careful that we separate the question of scale on individual farms versus intensity and i think farms have to look themselves very closely at you know the value or what's the stock carrying capacity of their own farm can they grow enough feed and have the enough facility enough labor to handle the type of stock numbers that they want to keep and sometimes sometimes the marginal stock on on, on individual farms don't contribute as much extra margin in financial terms as you might think so there's capacity there for people to make good decisions i would say on optimizing their stocking rates 
they will be environmentally compliant, they'll be, you know, compliant with everything. They will have better maybe balance of, of labor versus stock numbers and maybe their profit will be better as well. So I think we shouldn't fear a lot of this stuff. I think the technologies that are there and the model that's there can deliver a high profit system for people. And I think it's embracing the technologies we have available to us now is really where we should be focusing, I would say. It would be fair to say in this year where costs are higher in production-wise that this is the year to look at your marginal cows and say, well, she's not actually making money this year, so is she worth keeping the system? Like, like, yeah, like yeah. You should be looking at what are your best cows, I'll keep these, bottom 10%, we'll look at these cows, who's not making a profit or who's marginal making a profit. Maybe they're the cows to look at. And yeah, and that's that's the thing, I suppose, by definition, the marginal ones, what we would say is marginal ones are ones where you have to step outside your own land resources to buy the feed. And this year, you know, the cost of feeding the marginal animal could be up to, could be up to 18, 1900 euros per head, which is high. Like, you know, that, I would say a lot of people could be surprised at that, but like, it's very simple. Like you look at your profit monitor and you say, well, I'm feeding a ton per cow, for example, of concentrate, it's costing me, you know, this year it's going to be costing you 400 quid to buy the buy the feed for the cow. But you have to, for those marginal ones, you have to also take the forage cost as well because by definition, that's all being bought. When you add it all in together, that could be up 80, 1900 euro. Then you add your veterinary and all the rest on top of that, you're up to maybe, you could be up to two, two and a half thousand euros of a, of a cost basically per marginal animal. Now, does the bottom 10% produce enough milk to, to offset that cost? And in a lot of herds, they probably would just about do it or yeah. maybe break even. So you may end up milking 10% more for no extra cash, uh, but you have all the extra work for yourself. So, you know, we can't, I can't sit here and say that every farmer should call 10%, but I could sit here and say that individual farms should do their sums and see, should that, is that what they should be done? And a, one final point on that is that the time to do that is sooner rather than later because the cost savings will happen, you know, and the feed savings will happen um, in this part of the year. There's not much point in deciding in October that I've had marginal cows for the year. It's just a bit of tweaking on certain on certain farms would make a big difference, I would say. Yeah. Joe Patton and Brian McDonald, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. As the World Potato Congress takes place this week, Agriland journalist Megan O'Brien visited Finnegan's potato farm in County Meath to see firsthand the production system for the farm enterprise and what challenges these producers are facing. So we are the Finnegan's, I'm Paul and this is Cahill. Um, we run this potato farm, well it's a mixed kind of uh, potato farm, we have crops, arable crops, we also have cattle as well and Joe, which is my other brother, he's involved in the business as well, Cahill is my son. We run over 3,000 acres here and we also pack potatoes there for retail as well. We also have 170 sucklers and we have another business there which we, it's an added value business to our potatoes in which we kind of cook and prepare uh, small little ready meals and pack them for retail as well. Luckily we just finished planting the potatoes about two or three weeks ago. We done silage last week, our own silage and then we're starting to plant Brussels sprouts at the minute. That will come in at Christmas time and it's not really, planting brush sprouts kind of different, you kind of set your stages so you don't want them all coming in at the same time so we'll be harvesting from November to maybe up to nearly Paddy's Day yeah. if they're still good enough at that stage. Um, so we, you'll plant a few this week, you'll plant a few next week so then when they're ready you have them between November and then obviously your busy Christmas time that's when you sell the most. 
and then that lead into our harvesting our main crops of our cereals and then on to our potatoes again. So yeah, so it's it really, really it's non-stop. The cycle nearly doesn't stop. We probably have two quiet months, well maybe one quiet month, which is June. You know, crops are growing and so you fertilise your fertilizer. You're, you're, you're looking after, after your crops, and then mid-July we'll start with the barley harvest, and then from then it'll kick on then to with the wheat, move on then into our potatoes, and move on then into our Brussels sprouts and. And then the calf and the cows and stuff. So, so the calf and the cows are start in, in probably yeah in the January and things like that. So and then you're preparing the ground again for for, for, for the next planting. Well, it's full on, and that was probably one of the reasons that we have we're kind of mixed up a little bit in the farm and enterprises, probably just to keep our our staff more or less uh, full time and not to be losing any staff. So, you know, all, all our guys are trained up to to a good level of, of uh, skills. We'll say when in what's involved in these, this machinery, you know, today like there's a lot of you know, good operators, you need good operators for these machineries. So, yeah, we keep our staff kind of all year around it. Yeah, so we've had 300 kilowatts of roof space going in there in the next couple of weeks, which will uh, minimize some of our, our we'll say, costs on energy because we, while we're in contract at a very low price, we come out of contract in another, uh, I think it's another two months, we're out of contract there at the, at the at the current price, so then we were don't know we're probably looking at energy costs maybe in the high thirties in around that a kilowatt. So that to us means that the solar panels it really is a no-brainer. Even to get parts now is a problem. Just the, the lead times on, on a lot of parts now is crazy. So even like two or three days like for delivery is grand, but like you go on a week and the tractor's sitting there for a week, like when it could be doing stuff like that's massive to us. Like we need the tractors are no good in here. Even though they have to be in here the odd time but do prefer them out in the fields working away. While we can get funding, we'll say, from our vegetable end of things, which is our Brussels sprouts, and well, starting to do, um, grow beetroot there this year, um, we can get grant aid on that. But on the potato sector, there's nothing for us at all. And it can mean, you know, you want to build a fridge or you want to buy equipment, like everything there is so expensive that it's just not feasible anymore. So yeah, I think we're probably as a bit as an industry we're kind of left behind a little bit. I know we're only a very small percentage uh, of of uh, we'll say land in the in the country that's growing on the on the potatoes, but still and all, it's a huge huge industry which has an, an awful lot of knock on effects of people that's involved in the industry, and I think that's definitely forgotten about. So hopefully now we'll be able to highlight it a little bit more and maybe people will look at it. It's hard to tell the future. You can't see what's happening but um no definitely there is like all the input costs i'm seeing this year more than any year i'm like oh gee, like how does the place function like but oh look you just kind of have to deal with it like everything will work out hopefully um with our growing business there we're trying to cover our different sections so like you have your cattle so if that if one part of the business takes a hit you can accord compromise with your other bits that's why we kind of have branched mm. out and we've different sections like we have the kitchen facility that's that's yeah. going well yeah but we mainly got that because our second grade like potatoes weren't good enough to, like the con consumer wants the perfect potato with the perfect skin and we were seeing a lot of waste potatoes that were going for cattle feed which really were losing money even though yeah you're getting paid for them, but you're not making money at all so that's why we ended up going for the kitchen end of it because we could peel the potatoes and then the skin so once you take the skin off the potato underneath is perfect like so that's how we get in on that and yeah. it's been a major well the, the value added business has definitely been now we also had a lead into retail as well 
which was yeah. a, a big benefit for us because we go into retail with, with our fresh potatoes. So we kind of, you know, we looked at the business model to see, well, what can we explore? What can we add to the business? And if we can bolt something onto our business, infrastructure is here, a lot of, you know, machinery is here, and if we can bolt on something that actually sits, sits into our, you know, our workplace of what we do, we will do that. And that's exactly what we've done. But, you know, we're increasingly having to innovate in ways like that to see, you know, what's coming down the line next. And that's really where you have to be, probably in most businesses too, but especially as a potato grower, you know, we are very limited on to what else we can do. Like. Sean Ryan, IFA Potato Chair, thank you for joining us on Farmland today. First of all, Sean, let's start off by talking about the current inputs increase at the moment. It's affecting all sectors. How is it affecting specifically the potato sector? Well, I suppose, for, first of all, Stella, the, the fertilizer is, is one. Uh, fertilizer has gone up 180%. Um, then you have electricity costs, you have uh, labor costs, you have, you have all these ex ex extra costs towards last year. Um, the electricity one is a, is a serious one uh, this year. Um, I'll just give you an example of a grower in Wexford. Um, his coal room bill, say a 100 acre grower, uh, his coal room bill uh, three years ago was 1800 euros for November, December. And for the same two coal rooms, uh, this year was 9,120. So there's a, the serious cost there in the, in the you know, in, in keeping the potatoes right. Like you, probably the consumer doesn't realize like that they have to be kept at three degrees to keep them from budding and keep the, you know, keep the quality right for, for the shelf. And so it's, uh, the, the electricity one is a serious one that, you know, that's probably not being looked at, I suppose, um, from the consumer's eyes. So, um, yeah, there, there's other costs there as well. You have labor, you have diesel is another serious one. It's um, that, you know, planting the crops there, like the serious machinery involved in, in planting. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're costing, the costs in that are, are, are serious as well. And Sean, you, you're new to the IFA potato committee chair role but you're not new to potatoes no, and no. you know what previous seasons have been like and the, and the planting out. How does this year compare to other years? Well, as I suppose on a positive side of it, uh, like we've, we've got great conditions planting the crops. We had a, a great year. Um, now maybe up to Donegal has um, got more rain than what we did, but it's uh, in general, it was a great year planting. Um, same as all the other commodities, you know, all the other crops as well. It was, just, uh, it, was, it was probably never as good as, as regards the planting season. Um, there seems to be less being planted because of, of the input costs and uh, land availability and, and uh, costs as well. Um, another cost that I missed out on there was well, probably the transport costs. Um, that's gone up as well, but you can't, you know, the, the lorry men, they need every cent they're getting as well, you know, the way diesel is. So it's, it's, it's a vicious circle, really, what's after, you know, what's after happening. It's, it's a knock-on effect to everyone, really. So, um, there, yeah, that seems to be less being planted because of, because of input costs. And, the, you know, that seems to be, the, the, at the moment, we haven't got the department figures yet, but uh, we, we'll have them in about three weeks or a month's time. And John, what are the main markets for Irish potatoes? Actually, the main market would be the, the bagging trade, uh, which would be, say, potatoes are, 80% of the potatoes now are going uh, to packers in, and they're supplying the, the male multiples. 
So the, that's where most of the market is, but that, that had more, mainly the bagging trade. The rest of it would be chipping salads and uh, processing for peeling as well. So the, um, that's all of them, that's the, it's mainly, mainly bagging, 80% of it is bagging. And do the potatoes grown in Ireland primarily stay in Ireland? Yeah, or do we yeah. export many of them or they're just homegrown? No, no, uh, we're, we're, um, we're using them all, they're all used in, in, in Ireland, there's, there's no export of them. Uh, they would, they were, we're trying to revitalise the, the seed industry again. Because of Brexit, we can't bring in seed from Scotland. So we're trying to get that up and running again. We've met the minister on it, and we're going to try and get that up and running. That we, you know, that's a full circle. That you know that we have our own, that we have the full food security like uh, of that. That we try and keep it, keep it all, do it the, all the way from seed to to to, to where. So how dependent are we here in Ireland on the likes of seed from Scotland? We were probably yeah yeah we were dependent on it, but we you know, we're, we're trying you know we're going to get um, get get it going up and running again. It was running years ago, and then some of it went to Scotland because of they were probably a little bit ahead of, of coal rooms and things like that that, that time. And but uh, we have to get it up and running again now because we we, we can't because of Brexit we can't we can't bring in the seed from anywhere else. And in terms then of. The fact that the market here, I suppose, is really for the bagged potatoes and it stays within Ireland. Um, at least supermarkets and retail stores and convenience stores stayed open during COVID. So people were still buying potatoes and yeah. probably cooking more at home. But the hospitality sector did slow down and even came to a complete halt. Did that have an impact? It did. Um, that Yeah, it, it did. But um, the bag and trade took a lot of that last year because there was, there was extra bag and trade. Um, Covid was probably a help and a harm. Um, it probably gave us a false economy, you know, economy of, of the sales. Like so, it if we had to, you know, um, this year then the sales are, are not as high because of Covid. Uh, but the um, no, that a lot of them went into the whatever was going for processing uh, was sold in, in in the bag and trade after. And there were still hospitals and things going. You know, there was a still little bit of, of processing going on. The you know the hospital trade was still. Was still there, like so. In in terms of the challenges that the the potato sector is facing at the moment, is there more support that could be given to it, either from the department, from the minister? Is more needed? Oh, de definitely, yeah. We're uh, going to meet the minister on this. Uh, we've we've called for a meeting for him, and we're going to meet him on this. Uh, we we definitely need support. Uh, we need, we need government support, and we need it uh, fairly fairly soon because there is. You know, they're under serious pressure out there. Like the, the bills are, are, are mounting, and it's it needs to be it needs to be definitely there needs to be support uh, given from the minister on this. With the cost of inputs increasing, Sean, has the cost of what I suppose potato producers are getting then on the front end risen as well? No, that's where the issue uh, is. Um, we're four point seven percent less than last year, so. Um, you know, it, it, that's you know that's another thing that needs to be, you know, we're going to have costs of probably thirty percent or uh, extra. Uh, now that equates to, to, you know, we don't want to frighten consumers either. Like that equates to probably ten percent to the customer. But we need the supermarkets to, to stand up and, and take some of the. You know, we can't we can't bear all the all the costs. Like so, we need the packers and the supermarkets to, to step in as well and take you know take some of the the hit. Uh, you know, and that way, like the consumer won't be hit um, too bad, like so. 
And you see headlines sometimes, Sean, like, you know, we could run out of chips for fish and chips or, you know, chip shops could be running low on potatoes. And I think people go, OK, maybe we're not as secure as we thought we were. But will the supply be there really um, at the end of the day? That's a, a very hard one to answer, Stella, because it all depends on, on weather. Like we're so related, you know, we're so, it's all dependent on weather. Um, you know, if we got a drought during the summer, uh, that, that affects the, the crops. Um, and, you know, you, you can't, you, it's very hard. That, that's a hard one to call, really. Mm -hmm. uh, but we'd be, you know, we'd be hoping that we will be able to supply the, the market. That's our job to do that. And, uh, we, that, you know, we'd be hoping that we, we will supply the market, yeah. And finally, Sean, the World Potato Congress is taking place uh, this week. Dublin happens to be hosting it this year. So people are going to be talking all things buds yeah. uh, over the course of these days. Do you feel that these type of events are a good opportunity to maybe publicise you know, the humble spud and make it more attractive in markets because I feel sometimes perhaps maybe other sectors, like big sectors like beef or dairy mm. or so on, you know, they, they obviously naturally enough swallow up a lot of, of the marketing and publicity. But um, events like this, do you feel that they, they can achieve something in terms of, of, you know, talking and discussions about be it whether it's latest technologies in planting potatoes or marketing them to different markets? Yeah, sure. It 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 it's showcasing the industry really. You know, there's over a thousand people coming to this this conference, and it's gone all over three days. And Bloom is on uh, uh, right afterwards. So well, it's on the second. The two of them are finishing up. One is starting, the other is finishing. And in Bloom, um, Borbia have a stand in it with all the potato varieties in it. So it would be very interesting for people to go into that stand in Bloom. Uh, but every all that is, is is a help to the industry. You know, we we need. You know, we need all that to, to showcase to, to this consumer um, that this is, you know, this is the way potato growing is going and going forward. Sean, thank you very much for joining us on Farmland today. Thanks, Stella. Bye. That's all from Farmland for now. You can stay informed of all the latest agricultural news on agriland.ie or the Agriland app on your smartphone.